It gets a little more serious when you hear stories like Cassie Bernal, who was a high school student at the Columbine shooting. She literally faced down the barrel of a gun and was asked, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. It gets a little more serious when we start talking about stuck situations. Maybe another category of stuck. Maybe you found yourself stuck in a dead-end job. Maybe you feel stuck with uh, sickness and addiction, cancer. Maybe you or someone you know have been stuck in a bad marriage, hopeless situation. You don't see a way out. And then the stuck situations can get even worse. When you find yourself stuck, but there's no one to blame but yourself. When you realize that whatever situation you're in, there's no one to blame but you. It was your poor decision. It was your bad choice. You knew better. You thought it. you would escape the consequences this time. You wouldn't get caught this time. But you did. You know, that's the situation that we're going to see David in this morning. If you open up to Psalm 34... Before we get there, there's a little inscription right before the text starts. And it gives us the setting, the backdrop for Psalm 34. Your heading or title will say something like this. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And so before we unpack the first half of Psalm 34 this morning, I want to go back. I want to go back, so hold your finger there in Psalm 34 and go back a few books to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And as you turn to 1 Samuel 21, I can give you the quick rundown of what's happened so far. You might remember back in 1 Samuel 17, you have the, the great story of David and Goliath. David's a teenager. He conquers the big and bad Goliath with a couple little stones. And from there he, he receives accolades and fames. He is in the King Saul's favor. He gets to move into the king's court. He's doing well. He's anointed. He's the future anointed king of Israel, serving under the current king of Israel, Saul. But as David's popularity grows and grows, Saul starts to get jealous. Saul starts to feel threatened by David. And so Saul tries to get rid of David. He sends him into Philistine territory on a couple battle expeditions, thinking that there's no way he would come out alive. But he does. He kills many, many Philistines. He has many victories in battle, so much that the people are saying Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. And as a result of his victories in battles and his popularity growing, he, he marries the king's daughter. But Saul's anger just grows and grows. And it comes to a point where Saul wants to get rid of David. He tries to kill David a couple of different times. He throws a spear at David, trying to literally nail him to the wall. David's wife says, David, you've got to get out of here. You've got to escape. 
And so Michael, his wife, helps David escape. And that's where we get to 1 Samuel 21. David leaves the palace, leaves the king's court, and he runs towards enemy, enemy territory. He has nothing but the clothes on his back, and he goes to the priest of Israel. His name is Ahimelech. And he gets there and he says, hey, I'm here on a king's mission. He wasn't on the king's mission. He starts to lie. He starts to deceive the people around him. He asked Ahimelech, he said, hey, do you have any food to eat? And he says, no, all I have is a consecrated bread, the special bread for service. And David says, good, I'll take that. He convinces them to give him some bread. And then he says, hey, I was in such a hurry on the king's business and all. Do you have any weapons? And Ahimelech looks around and he says, I'm a priest. I don't have any weapons. And he's like, we do have one. We have one weapon. And actually, David, you know it. It's the sword from Goliath. Remember about 10, 15 years ago when you cut off Goliath's head and took his sword? We have that here. And he says, great, I'll take that. And so he takes a little bit of bread and he takes a sword and he leaves the priest. That's the first half of 1 Samuel 21. And he leaves the priest and he starts to head to a city called Gath. Now Gath is outside of Israel. It's in Philistine territory. It's in enemy territory. And I'm, I'm sure he's assuming that Saul won't go looking for him there. And so we pick up the story in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him and dances? Saul had struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so even though years had passed, David's reputation had caught up with him. It was well known among the Philistines and it wasn't long before he was recognized in the city of Gath. He was captured, he was seized, he was placed under house arrest where he awaited the king. And then we get to verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so feigning madness, David narrowly escapes. Certain imprisonment, maybe death. And then he continues on to a new place of hiding. He goes down a mountain, up another, and into the caves of Adullam. And the saga continues throughout the rest of First Samuel. And so that's the backdrop of Psalm 34. David's on the run. He's lying. He's deceiving. He almost got killed. He pretended he was insane. Madman. So now I want you to turn and listen to David's words in Psalm 34. The first three verses read like this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes, it, makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Wait, what? Something does not line up here. Either David is being a total hypocrite, which I don't think is the case, or something dramatic has happened. 
this is the same David, the David that had just got himself stuck in such a jam, running for his life, lying to priests, pretending that he was insane. And so this is where I want to explore this morning. How do we get these words of praise from this bad situation? What happened that seems to have so drastically changed David's perspective? And if we keep reading in Psalm 34, we actually get our answer. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. David recognized that it was the Lord who had delivered him. In verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me. Verse 6, he says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him. And so if you'll bear with me, just for a few minutes, I want to go back to the story in 1 Samuel. I want to add in, we don't, you don't have to turn there, I just want to add in a couple extra biblical ideas. My thoughts about what might have, it might have looked like from David's perspective as he lives this story. And so I envision David arriving in, arriving in Gath. He's got Goliath's big old sword under his arm. For whatever reason, I imagine this hunk of cornbread in his other hand. And it's almost gone. It's been a long journey. He's wondering, what am I going to do now? Are people going to figure me out? Can I blend in? Maybe I'll go to the king and maybe I'll become a mercenary. I've gotten pretty good at killing people. Maybe I can find a new career. And so as he's thinking these through things, as he's thinking these things through, he notices a few guys across the street. And they're looking at him and they're talking and they're looking at him and they're whispering. And before he knows it, some other guys come up and grab him. They grab him, they take him, and they put him under house arrest. And there as he awaits what will happen next, I can just imagine him sitting in a small room looking across at these now guards as he awaits the king of Gath to come. And I can imagine the, the soldiers there in all of Goliath's sword. And they're looking at the sword, and they're looking at David, and they're just in shock of all that has just transpired. And then I can imagine David looking at that sword and remembering back to the words that just as a scrawny little teenager, he said to Saul, where he said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And as he looks at the sword, he remembers what he told that big giant Goliath as he stood there and said, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I can remember him thinking, I can imagine him remembering back to how that all transpired. And he's starting to realize where he had gone wrong as he thinks about his fears and his lies and his deceit. But his thoughts are interrupted when the king arrives. And it's hard to say whether it was a stroke of genius or just sheer fear or luck or God's leading. But in any case, it was definitely desperation where David resorts to just going insane. He just completely pretends that he has lost his mind. He scratches the walls and the posts. He's yelling and mumbling. He's spitting and spits flying and foam is going down his beard. And then I can imagine him doing one of these things. Is he buying it? And as he's paused and he's wondering what's going to happen next, he, he hears these words from the king. Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And just like that, David's thrown out of the city. And I can imagine those words ringing through his head. He's replaying that scene of humiliation. He's hearing those words, madman, in his head as he goes from one place of danger to another cave in hiding. And I think it's in that journey where he's coming down from Gath, down a mountain, and he's about to go back up another mountain and into the caves of Adullam that he starts to realize where he had lost his way. That he had lost sight of what once had been most precious to him. The confidence of the presence of the Lord. I can imagine him taking a break from his journey, finding a nice hard rock, sitting down, pulling out a pad of paper and pen. And then he writes Psalm 56. We won't look there this morning, but I think Psalm 56 has the same heading. We know it was when he was seized at Gath. But an important thing happens in Psalm 56. Verse 3 and verse 4 say this, When I am afraid, I put my trust in You. In God, whose Word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I think David had this moment of clarity. He realized what he had done wrong. And he penned Psalm 56, as his confession. He talks about his tears. He talks about how he realized that he didn't need to fear what men could do. He needed to fear the Lord. And as he processes those thoughts through, he then writes Psalm 34. You see, this new resolve to trust the Lord led him to this psalm of praise and deliverance. How does David go from a fugitive on the run to one who is proclaiming and praising the goodness of God? He had a very personal experience of deliverance. And his personal experience of deliverance is what led to this public psalm of praise. 
And so if you go back and look at the first few verses of Psalm 34, verse 1, he's saying, I have a new commitment. I am resolved to bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my lips. In verse 2, he doesn't really get into all the problems and mess ups, but he says, I know who God is. He praises God for who He is, the One who brought Him deliverance. He recognizes His need for humility. And He points to the goodness of the Lord. And then in verse 3, He says, Join with Me. Praise with Me. Recognize the goodness of God. And then He moves into verses 4-7. through where He gives testimony to how, how God had personally delivered Him. David doesn't take the credit. He points to the Lord. And then He encourages us as well. The hearers, the readers of His psalm in verse 5 and verse 7. He's saying this wasn't just an isolated incident in the life of one man. This is how God works in the lives of all those who trust in Him. David had lost sight of these truths that he had known even in his youth. He lost sight of verse 5 that those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. He had lost sight of verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And so it's here. As we begin to consider how this psalm intersects with our lives today that we should have hope. We have hope because in so many ways, David's story is our story. That God offers deliverance through and only through His grace. And here's the good news of God's grace. That it isn't given to the perfect or the put together as if those people existed but it's given to all those who seek Him with a pure heart. To all those who fear the Lord. That the grace that is given is through the very presence of the Lord Himself. This psalm, these truths, they're for you and for me. God's grace and His deliverance is for us. It's for the screw-ups. It's for the broken. It's for the stuck. And it's for the tired. It's for those who should have known better and for those who couldn't help it. It's for those who are struggling to find meaning in this life. It's for those who have forgotten the truths of their youth. It's for those who think that they are worthless and for those who think too highly of themselves. God's grace is for everyone who is sitting here in these pews this morning and it is for all those who are outside of this building. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what situations you're dealing with, where you might be stuck, where you might have been stuck in the past. But I am confident in this. God's grace is sufficient for you even if it's your fault, even if you've got no one to blame but yourself, 
Even if the odds seem stacked against you and you can't see a way of escape, hold on to this one truth. God's grace is sufficient for you. Know that all those who look to Him are radiant. That their faces shall never be ashamed. Know that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. And that He delivers them. And so even as I say these words of Scripture, there may be some of you who are skeptical. And I have to admit, I can be there myself. Because you, you, you question some of this because this just, just isn't how life works. Sure, it's easy for David to write these praises because he experienced deliverance. He escaped. He's fine. Everything worked out for him. But what about when things don't work out? What about when things don't get any better? What about when you're still waiting for deliverance? What about when things get worse? Even when you're trying to follow God. When you're doing all the right things. You question if you have enough faith. You question how these promises could possibly apply to you. When things seem so bad. When you're stuck. The first thing I would tell you is, I hear you. I pray for you. Mourn with you. But I also tell you to look closely at what David says in verse 4 and verse 6. What was David delivered from? He was delivered from all his fears. Verse 6. He was saved from all his troubles. But if you think about it very long, you might be thinking that David is lying again. He was delivered from all his fears. Do you know where he's heading? To a cave. Do you know why he's heading there? To hide. Do you know why? Because he's afraid that Saul might kill him. He was saved from all his troubles. Saul's still trying to kill him. So what's David talking about? What do you mean that he was delivered from all his fears? How can he say that he was saved from all of his troubles? And I think this is what we need to understand and hear as we consider what David is telling us. We need to go back to the beginning. We need to consider what got David in trouble to begin with. It wasn't the lying. It wasn't the deceit. It wasn't pretending to be a madman. Do you know where David lost his way? When he put the fear of man above the fear of the Lord. Somewhere along the way, David forgot that if God was with him, there was no need to worry or fear. David went from appointed king, giant slayer, military hero, to liar, fugitive, con man. Why? Because he feared what men might do to him. But what has this experience taught him? What has this experience of personal deliverance taught David? 
to put God in the right place. To fear the Lord above all else. And if he fears the Lord, he has nothing to worry about. If he looks to the Lord, he won't be forsaken. There will be no need for shame. Was he delivered from all his fears? Yes, because he knew it was all in God's hands. Were all of his troubles gone? Not really. Was he saved from them? Absolutely. Why? Because he knew God and relied on God. He trusted in God and he held on to his promises. And so I ask you, are you trusting in the Lord this morning? Where do you turn when you find yourself stuck? Is it God or do you look to yourself or a way of escape? And we'll see next week as we finish out this psalm that affliction still comes to those who fear the Lord. But we can still have confidence that those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. We can still have confidence that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and He delivers them. But before we leave this morning, I think there's one more important aspect that are tied to these verses that we should notice. And it really is just said in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Next week we're going to look at the fear of the Lord and and unpack really what that means. But I I don't want you to miss what David is saying when he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, David isn't just writing this psalm so that you would have something nice to read before you go to bed at night. He wasn't just writing this psalm so that people could hear him praise. He wants you, his hearers, to taste, to see, to hold, to feel, and to experience the goodness of God for yourself. He speaks of His deliverance and the faithfulness of God because He knows that there are others that are just like Him. Others who need to take refuge in the one true God. He understands a truth that we need to take hold of. That Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is not meant to just be seen from afar. It's a reality to be lived. It's not supposed to be like a painting that we just hang on our wall or a bumper sticker that we put on our car or a keychain that dangles from our keys. That Christianity is meant to be lived, to experience the goodness of God. David is telling everyone who would listen that his experience could be theirs as well. That no matter their circumstance or sin or failure or situation that they're in, if they have the Lord, they have everything that they need. God promises to give us what is good and He causes everything to work together for His ultimate glory and our good. Remember where David is. He's in hiding. He's been running for his life. 
He ran from a life of luxury in the king's court to one of darkness and hunger. Yet he exclaims, the Lord is good. He knows the Lord is good because he has experienced it for himself. And now he's using that experience to point others to the Lord. So that's the last thing I think we need to consider this morning. We have not been placed in this world for ourselves. We are here to proclaim God's goodness and faithfulness to a lost world. That your experiences, that your experiences of God's faithfulness and goodness, just like David's, are an opportunity to point others to Jesus. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what hardships you're dealing with or what situation you might be stuck in. But I know this, if you fear the Lord, if you trust in the Lord, this is an opportunity to point others to the goodness of the Lord. You know, there's something remarkable when you sit and talk with someone who has truly tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord. You know what's not remarkable? To tell someone you went to church. To tell someone you heard a good sermon. It's not really that remarkable to know a lot of Bible verses or to win an argument. It's not remarkable. But do you know what is remarkable? Your personal story of God's deliverance and faithfulness as you have lived a life dependent on Him. Stories about what you used to be, who you used to be, stories of marriages that have been restored, stories of children that have come back, stories of despite sickness and trials and persecution, you are able to say, God is good. Those are remarkable stories. Those are stories that turn people's heads and turn their ears and hearts to the goodness of the Lord. Our experiences, even the hard ones, even those stuck situations, should not only drive our praise to the Lord, but point others to Jesus. But that, of course, assumes that you yourself have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord. The deliverance that God offers is through His Son, Jesus. The goodness comes by knowing and tasting of the death of Jesus on the cross that we celebrated in communion. So usually as we wrap up, I usually try to give you a couple pointed things. Here's a couple applications. Here's some things that you can do this week to apply what you've heard that I need to try to live out. I can't just be up here and talk about it. I'm going to ask you to encourage you to be introspective this week. Give you a couple things to pray about. I'm going to encourage you to pray that you would continually keep God first. That He would be the first one you turn to. 
I would encourage you to pray. Especially if you are in a stuck situation right now. That He would give you grace to endure. And that you would hold fast to His promise of deliverance and presence. And lastly, I want to encourage you to pray about a person who needs to hear your story. Pray about a person who is in your circle of influence that needs to hear the message of grace. That they might hear your testimony of praise and taste and see for themselves the goodness and faithfulness of God. If we would commit to praying like that, I think we come back knowing and tasting the goodness of the Lord a little bit more next week. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I'm thankful that grace isn't for perfect people. It's for people like me. Screw-ups and mess-ups and failures and sinners. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who may not have experienced Your goodness, Your grace. They haven't understood what Your Son did on the cross for their sins. Died in their place. Tasted death on their behalf. Lord, I pray You would draw them to You even as I pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us keep You first. Understand the fear of the Lord. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be content to just come to church on Sundays and say we're a Christian, but that our experiences would drive others to want to hear, more importantly, to taste the goodness of the Lord. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.